Welcome to episode 86 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime FBI cases. Today, we get to speak to retired agent Kevin Miles, who served in the FBI for 23 years as the FBI's first officially assigned full-time Special Agent Bomb Technician, SABT, he spent more than 17 years acquiring extensive experience in the field of improvised explosive devices and post-blast investigations. In this episode, Kevin Miles reviews the duties of a post-blast bomb technician, processing and investigating explosive crime scenes, such as the bombing of the Kobar Towers in Saudi Arabia in 1996 and the Maldives Al-Qaeda bombing in 2007. Kevin Miles is a past executive director of the International Association of Bomb Technicians and Investigators. He has traveled to 65 countries in 48 states, including multiple deployments to high-risk areas such as Afghanistan and Pakistan, and has taught more than 9,000 students from around the world on the intricacies involved with bombing investigations. In 2010, he was named as an FBI Master Special Agent Bomb Technician, and he has published numerous articles and research papers on explosive devices and post-blast investigations. He has also received numerous awards for his service to the first responder community. Currently, Kevin Miles is a lecturer at Eastern Kentucky University's School of Safety, Security, and Emergency Management. I love learning new things, and there's so much about explosives and bombings that I just didn't know, and Kevin really does a great job of telling us all about post-blast investigations. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Before we get to the interview, I have an important announcement. I will not be posting an episode next week. So when you wake up Friday morning, October the 6th, there will not be a new episode. I will be in Spain. My husband and I are taking a 12-day vacation to Costa del Sol of Spain, and we'll be in Marbella, and we'll be taking day trips to Sevilla, Cordoba, Granada, Tangiers, and Ronda. I can't wait. Now, I know it's short notice, but I did see that I do have listeners who live in the Andalusia region of Spain. If there's any way that we can arrange it, I would love to meet you in person. I will be getting out my monthly email on the FBI and Books, TV, and Movies. I'll get that out a little later, maybe around the 5th or the 6th of October. That way, I'll be able to include a few photos from Spain. One of my goals is to speak with somebody in law enforcement in Spain to get an idea of what things we have in common between the FBI and the equivalent agency in Spain. If you're not a member of the FBI Retired Case File Review Reader Team and you want to get that email on the FBI and books, TV and movies, all you need to do is go to my website, jerrywilliams.com and sign up when you see the pop-up. As part of my monthly email, you'll also receive the FBI reading resource, which is a list of all of the books about the FBI written exclusively by the FBI agents who have appeared on this podcast. The reading resource right now is up to 30 books, crime fiction, true crime, and memoir. I want to thank you for all the emails that I've received congratulating me for releasing the audiobook of Pay to Play and for reaching 1 million episode downloads for the podcast. During this week's episode, my dog Canyon makes a cameo. You'll hear him barking hello. Last thing, I want to thank those of you who have picked up a copy of Pay to Play. 
When you pick up a copy of my FBI crime thriller, you're helping to defray the cost of me putting out ad-free content on a weekly basis. So thank you. Now here's the show. I am excited to introduce my guest today, Kevin Miles. Hi, Kevin. Hi, how are you? I am good. Now, I learned about you from someone on LinkedIn, Tom Vale, who has been listening to FBI Retired Case File Review, and he sent me a note and he said, you need to interview Kevin Miles about being a bomb tech. <laughs> I've known Tommy many years. Well, look, when I get a recommendation from somebody who listens to the show, I go right out and try to connect with that retired agent to see if they're interested. Most of the time, everybody says absolutely yes. You said yes, so here we are. Well, I'm very flattered, and quite frankly, I had never even heard of a podcast until you reached out to me, so I'm happy to be here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, good. See? Now, I taught you something, so uh, exactly. you're going to reciprocate and you're going to teach us everything, which is Anything good. Anything you want to know. Yeah, because, well, the good thing about this is I know nothing other than really liking the movie Hurt Locker. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Did you see it? I I was given, I, I, I actually watched that movie in a small theater in Beverly Hills, California, when it first, actually before it came out. Oh, excuse us. <laughs> yeah, and um, I was invited by um, the uh, 60 Minutes, the news show 60 Minutes, to come and view it with a whole bunch of other military uh, bomb technicians who obviously were you know, part of that movie, and uh, to get our take on it and to, to watch it. Uh, actually, the director was there. And the writer, Mark Bowl, was there as well, and we watched it, and uh, um, I'll reserve judgment on, on Okay. It. You know, I really like the movie, but I guess, you know, that's going to be great because you're going to be able to tell us some of the things that, you know, were misconceptions. So let's get into this. Why would anybody in the world want to become a bomb tech? It sounds like a very dangerous occupation to me. Well, believe it or not, um, I... I first was was exposed to this explosives when I was in the Marine Corps about a thousand years ago. Uh, I, I had no experience with explosives, uh, not even firecrackers when I grew up in New York City. Um, I was a good kid. My mother says a great kid. I never played with fireworks during the 4th of July. And it just so happened when I joined the Marine Corps, um, they put me into an area of a specialty that dealt with explosives. And I learned about explosives. Uh, back in the late 70s, early 80s, and I was fascinated by it. And, and uh, all real Americans love blowing things up and seeing things blow up. So um, after I got out of the Marine Corps, I decided to uh, keep doing it and got in the police department in Oklahoma and got in the bomb squad and just went from there. And uh, it's not as dangerous as people think. Um, back in the olden days, before robots, before bomb suits, uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty dangerous. You didn't have the equipment that you have nowadays. Uh, you know, people all that people know about bomb squads and bomb technicians is what they see in the movies, i.e. the Hurt Locker, where, you know, the people are doing things that in real life are are very rarely, if ever, done anymore. And so, I mean, in a lot of ways, uh, being a police officer or a firefighter is even more dangerous than being a bomb technician because... You know, we know what we're doing. We have, we know what we're facing. We have the equipment. We have the training, and um, we know what we're getting into. So, I mean, yeah, it's it's a dangerous job, but it's not as dangerous as it used to be. When I first came on the bomb squad, I didn't have a, we didn't have robots. We didn't have robots, and we didn't have anywhere near the equipment we have now. And uh, there was a lot of what's called hand entry, which means actually putting your hands on suspected IEDs or real IEDs and taken apart by hand. Uh, that's not done anymore. And if it is, it's it's a very, very, very rare occurrence. Um, so anyway, it was it was very fascinating to me. And um, I've done it now for, I've come up on 30 years of being a bomb technician. And how much of that time was actually in the FBI? 23 of it. Yeah, I did uh, 23 years. I was a... Uh, 
I was a full-time, I was the very first, as far as, I'm, as far as I know, it's what I've been told anyway, I was the first officially recognized on bureau paper full-time FBI bomb technician. Also, we were also, we were called, and still are called, SCVT, Special Agent Bomb Technicians. I got to Los Angeles field office and, uh, in 1995, and uh, I was the only bomb tech in L.A. at the time, so they made me a full-time bomb tech on paper, and I stayed that way for the next 17 years until I retired. Wow. Yeah, so for the listeners, uh, just by way of explanation, there are many, many jobs like bomb techs in the FBI where it is a collateral duty. Now, you are an investigator, an agent, you're working cases, you're on a squad, and then you have this collateral duty, like an ERT, you know, an evidence uh, response team member, where if something happens, you go out. And right. You're right. And, and most of the time, somebody who was a bomb tech or explosive expert in the field, they did that part-time. Correct. Now, when you and I came on the job, low those many years ago, that was absolutely true. There were very few full-time specialty um, entities. And nowadays, though, this is, what, 25, 27 years later, there are a lot of full-time SABTs, a lot of full-time SWAT officers. There's a lot more full-time collateral. Actually, it's not collateral anymore. It's all full-time now. Um, but for a long time, I was the only one. And then a couple of the bigger cities, they started going into full-time positions. And now, uh, with the exception of the really small offices, which you know, some, you know, like Norfolk and and Springfield, some of the small towns, they just can't afford to have a guy full time or you know an agent full time with some of these collateral duties. But the big offices, I had nine people assigned to me. I had nine full time SCVTs oh. in Los Angeles when I retired, and you know that's that's unheard of back in the day. But now it's quite common. You know, some of the bigger places like New York, Washington, Chicago, they have multiple full time SABTs. All right, so, so what would you do on, on on a daily basis? What kind of work is there for nine people and uh, a team leader? Well, I was the, I was the team leader. I was the so-called uh, not official supervisor, but I, I managed the entire program. And, of course, I had all the administrative stuff I had to do, budgets and, and uh, training issues and uh, coverage. We had seven counties in Los Angeles we were responsible for. Actually, we had... Uh, more than that, we had eight counties we were responsible for. We we took uh, Kern County, California, which was technically Sacramento Division, but they were a lot closer to us than Sacramento, so we took them under our wing. So we had we had a lot of bomb squads we had to liaison with. Um, we would routinely go out on bomb calls. We had 12 civilian bomb squads in Los Angeles field office we were responsible for, and seven military. So that's 19 bomb squads in in Southern California, we were responsible for. So anytime one of those squads would get a call, which was often, um, you know, four or five times a day, we would go out on calls. And sometimes it had a federal nexus. Most times it did not. But we had such good relations with our bomb squads. I would say, hey, do you one of your guys want to come with us on a suspicious package call at the courthouse? Absolutely. So I'd send one of my guys there and... Um, and uh, they'd respond to the call with the with the local squad. We also had an enormous amount of training we did. We had uh, we had the FBI's large vehicle bomb post blast school school that was run out of LA Division. We had the um, underwater post blast crime scene school, which was run out of Los Angeles field office by my crew. We had the uh, tactical post blast, which is a crime scene school for uh, individuals who were about to be deployed to Afghanistan or Iraq. And we trained them how to uh, process a bombing crime scene in under 20 minutes. Um, we also had uh, the basic post-blast crime scene school. We had a lot of schools there, and we were kind of like the clearinghouse for most of the post-blast training in the United States. So, and we'd have maybe one, sometimes two week-long schools a month for many, many years. So we did a lot of that as well. Did a lot of dog and pony shows. Um, with those being in Philadelphia field I'm sure you went to some of them we also had an enormous we had more special events in Los Angeles field than anybody else we had to support the local bomb squads with the Academy Awards the Emmy Awards the Grammy Awards the uh, Rose Bowl Parade the Rose Bowl game any kind of all-star game that would come in I think I did two baseball all-star games 
while I was there. I did two Super Bowls. I did one NBA championship. So we did a lot of special events. I think I did 75 special events in the 17 years I was in Los Angeles. So we were very, very busy, more so than any other field office in the Bureau um, during my time. A lot of stuff going on. All right, so I guess you could break it down into different situations where you have first just a call about a suspicious activity or a suspicious uh, package, then, as you call it, post-blast, where there has been a bombing and you're going in after the fact. And then I guess there is just the testimony uh, and the evidence when you um, – you know, have done your your job, and now you are taking that to the next step and trying to to um, uh, convict somebody. Uh, you know, of, of being involved in the bomb. Could you take us through those three steps, or are there more than three steps? No, essentially, you've got what's called um, left of boom and right of boom. Oh, left I like of that. boom. At left of boom is everything you've done before the suspicious package or IED functions as designed and um this you know thankfully we don't live in iraq or afghanistan you know this is a big country but we we really don't get a lot of actual ids compared to other countries i mean we get a lot we're a huge country but you know we don't have the devices that other areas of the world are seeing thankfully uh, up to this point anyway so um, a lot of bomb squads get called out on suspicious packages that really they don't know what it is so we'll go out there, and um, it's all remote now. Back in the day, we would actually walk up on these things wearing a bomb suit, carrying x-ray. But now um, FBI now actually runs the Hazardous Devices School down in Huntsville, Alabama, which is the only school for civilian bomb technicians in America. And they mandate they mandate that every certified bomb squad in America, there's about a 475 of them now, have to have at least one robot. So we use the robots much more extensively than we used to um, because, you know, a lot of bomb squads didn't have robots. So we send the robot down there and we will do as much as we can remotely before we actually send a bomb technician up on the uh, device. So once we've done that and we, we successfully render this, the device safe or we, we determine that it's not an IED, uh, we move on. Then we've got right of boom. That means... The device has functioned before the bomb squad has gotten there, and now we have a crime scene. So then we use, you know, bomb technicians as uh, specialists. Okay, back in the day, back before 1995, in the Bureau anyway, uh, any kind of bombing crime scene would be run, but would be supervised by a SABT, by a bomb technician. After Oklahoma City, that changed, and now... Any kind of bombing crime scene is managed by ERT, as you mentioned, evidence response team. And we as bomb technicians then become specialists. We, you know, we help out, but we don't run things. And at that point, we become the quote unquote experts. Um, and we supervise and watch as the crime scenes are processed by the evidence response team, all of whom have to be post-blast trained now. Um, again, before 1995, the Oklahoma City bombing was the was the, um, the 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 case study for the FBI bomb program in a lot of ways, and now ERT evidence response teams in the bureau. If you're going to work a bombing crime scene, you have to be trained in post blast investigation, either through an FBI school or some sort of post blast training. You can't just go out there and go, "Okay, I'm here." You just can't work it with no experience. So. Um, we will watch as those um, specialists process the scene meticulously, and the evidence that's recovered, we take a look at and say, okay, that's not part of it, that is part of it, get rid of that, keep that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then when it comes to testimony, again, we assist the U.S. Attorney's Office or whoever, okay, because SABTs are also called out on non-federal bombings. We'll assist the local uh, police departments or sheriff's departments and bomb squads with, with their crime scenes. And I've testified numerous times in state court. Um, actually, I've testified more in state court than I have in federal court, quite frankly. Mm. And um, so we help out and we become uh, basically expert witnesses. And uh, we will be asked to explain how the device was constructed, how it functioned, 
what it was made out of, and uh, things like that. And I did that. I actually quite a lot. I testified twice in the World Trade Center in '93, um, and you know, like, like I said, a, a lot of times in in state court. Uh, a, a lot of these bombings don't rise to the federal level, but we go out on them anyway with the locals and assist them in any way we can. Wow. So could you tell me what I would learn? Now, what would be the goal of my you know, to accomplish if I went to a post-blast training? Well, it depends on what kind what kind of school you went to. There's several kinds that I used to run when I was in L.A. There was the basic post-blast crime scene. That is when you have literally no experience whatsoever in explosives or bombs or anything like that. And we start out with basically this is an explosive. This is an explosive device. This is what explosives do. It's a very, very basic um, um, uh, instruction. Uh, the crime scenes are very small, probably under a pound each. So because the goal for the basic course is to have the students find something. Okay, we don't want to blow the thing into oblivion and have them wander around the desert for you know two days and find nothing at all. That's demoralizing, but we we try to um, make it as realistic as we can, and um, we teach them how to process the scene. We teach them how to avoid contamination, which is a huge issue uh, in this country and other parts of the, of the world. Um, Could you explain best, that? Well, what you do not want to do is contaminate your evidence. Okay, That crime scene, from the, from the minute it detonates, from the minute the dice detonates, is contaminated. What you as a crime scene investigator does not want to do is contaminate it further. So, for example, um, we are not allowed to bring our firearms into a, a explosive crime scene because there's a possibility that we touch our firearms and transfer contamination from the bullets or residue on our firearms if we haven't cleaned our weapons since the last time we worked the firearms. Okay. <laughs> How dirty your firearms get, right? Some of it's clean, some of it's hidden. And uh, you have a dirty firearm and you somehow touch it and you transfer that residue from your firearm onto a piece of evidence, that's not good. So um, we also uh, do not... Um, we'll, for example, we will wear Tyvek suits on a bombing crime scene because bomb technicians by nature are contaminated all the time um, because we deal with explosives all the time and every day sometimes, in my case anyway. So I would wear gloves and I have Tyvek suits on. I, I would I always keep a brand new pair of boots in my response vehicle because, you know, the boots I wore um, during, you know, day-to-day -day activity – we're on explosives ranges almost uh, constantly. So the last thing I want to do is bring a dirty pair of boots onto an explosive crime scene. That opens up the uh, defense attorney to questioning me about contamination and cross-contamination. So that's a big issue with us. And um, if you ever see a bombing crime scene like in Boston or recently uh, at the mosque, you'll see the FBI or whomever else is there processing the scene. They're wearing those Tyvek paper suits. And that's the reason they're doing that, to keep contamination to a minimum. Now, you can't keep it away com you know, completely because, you know, there's always going to be some in there. But um, you do what you can. You, you, you tell the jury, you tell the judge that you did the best you could to keep from contaminating that crime scene any further than it already is. So, but, uh, and then you have the um, advanced, the graduate-level post-blast school. And that's the one that we did in Los Angeles for many years. And that is the uh, large vehicle bomb. This was a uh, step above. Um, like I said, we'd have maybe one or two pounds of explosives in the basic school. In the, in the graduate level, advanced or large vehicle bomb school, we would have hundreds, sometimes thousands of pounds of explosives in a vehicle. And I had the luxury of uh, being in Los Angeles, so I had the desert. I had very, very good relationships with my military EUD units like Tom Vale. We got along very well with the Army, Navy, Air Force, and the Marine Corps. We have, they all had huge bases out there in Southern California. And anytime I wanted to, uh, you know, blow something up a couple of thousand pounds, uh, they'd say, yeah, come on out here, do it, and bring your students with you. So, and we would put, you know, thousands of pounds of explosives in a, in a deuce and a half or a tractor trailer or something like that and have the students process that scene over a period of uh, two to three days. Then if you were a diver, if you were a, uh, 
a civilian diver or a uh, military diver. We had the underwater post-flare school, which is basically a basic post-flare school only underwater. And it was only it was open only to uh, divers. You didn't have to be a uh, bomb squad diver. You could be a regular you know, police diver who would be in a position to, you know, dive and pick up pieces of uh, IEDs. Um, so we had that school. Then we had for the military, a lot of military guys took this. It was the um, combat zone post-blast or the tactical post-blast. And this was a three-and-a-half-day course designed for individuals, EUD technicians mostly, or FBI agents, anybody who is deploying overseas um, in a high-threat area where you only had minutes to process a crime scene and get in and get out. Um, you don't have the luxury of being in you know, the U.S. where you have perimeters and lots of policemen to watch over you for days at a time. Uh, you got minutes, if any time at all, to get in there and process the scene and get out. Um, so we had all four of those schools, and it was designed for different people and different you know, job skills and different job sets. And anybody who wanted to uh, come out, I was also always uh, you know, available to have them come out and process the, or, or go, to the, go to the class. So that's what you're looking for. You look at, you're basically trying to reconstruct the IED you painstakingly process the scene. Doing a post-blast crime scene is a long, laborious, dirty job. It's not like, you know, a burglary or or you know, or, a, or even a, a shooting. Uh, your evidence is in little pieces, and you know you recognize what a gun looks like, but what does a gun look like when it's blown to pieces? And what do the internal parts look like? That's what you're going to find out there. So it's a lot of specialized training to do that, and. Um, that's what we did um, during my career anyway. They're still doing it now. Not as much because I left. So who are you working for now? I just started um, a gig as a uh, teacher at Eastern Kentucky University. And I'm teaching the um, post-blast crime scene, advanced and basic, in the only major... Right, this is an actual major at a university in the world. Uh, you can actually major in arson and post-blast investigation at Eastern Kentucky University, and I am now a, 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 a lecturer. Oh, is this your first uh, foray into it, this type of uh, in it instruction? It is my first foray into academia. Oh. And <laughs> I'm a little nervous. Uh, I, I, like I said, the, the vast majority, in fact, almost all of my students up to this point about 10,000 of them over the years, are a lot older than college freshmen. And they are police officers, they're firefighters, they're FBI agents um, with varying amounts of experience. So it's I've never really uh, instructed and taught a bunch of 18- and 19-year-olds. So this, this should be interesting. But like I said, I'm honored to be part of it. And as I said, it's it's the only... Actual, you can get a degree in this. It's the only university in the world that offers this degree to, to their students. So I'm pretty excited. It's going to be fun. Well, I know one thing they would really enjoy. You talked about being able to go out in the desert and blow things up. And I looked on the FBI website and I saw two videos. It's probably your guys blowing up stuff in the California desert. So um, it was pretty cool. I mean, you took little bits of explosives and different types of uh, equipment, and we're just blowing things up. Um, so I will link to those videos. I'll make sure that they're in this episode's show notes, so if anybody wants to go and look at that, it's pretty cool. I think 18-year-olds would uh, really enjoy blowing things up. I, are you going to be able to do that in class? I cannot do that in Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, the range that I have at my disposal here outside of uh, Richmond, Kentucky, um, is not anywhere near as large as what I had out 29 Palms or China Lake or Edwards Air Force Base. So I can't do the big, huge shots you see there on YouTube. And, and uh, yeah, those videos are all over the place there. You put in Kevin Miles' large vehicle bomb post-play school, you'll get to see those big, massive shots over the years. The biggest one I ever did was a little over 9,000 pounds in uh, 29 Palms, California. And uh, that was the largest shot I've ever done 
And it was one of the smallest classes I ever had. I only had like 25 students in that class. And normally my students, I'd have 40, 50, sometimes 60 students in the class because the crime scene was so massive. But these 25 guys and girls were, I mean, they worked their butts off for three days and they found almost every bit of evidence I put in this 9,000 pound shot. And, um, what kind of things impressive. did you put in? I was the I was at the IED. Uh, the IED I put in there. Um, they recovered most of it, not all of it. They recovered. They, they recovered enough to know what the IED was made out of. Um, they recovered parts of the vehicle. The vehicle, you know, there's no such thing as vaporization. Unlike the movies where you know, the, the, the truck vaporized. No, that doesn't happen. Um, they found bits and pieces of the truck all over the desert. They found enough to identify the truck, which is what I wanted them to do. It was just very impressive to what, you know, 25. Uh, people can do with a shot like that. So, um, unfortunately, I can't do 9,000 pounds <laughs> in Kentucky. In Kentucky, <laughs> I'd be in prison in a week, in, in, a, in a day. So, well, let's do two, let's do two things. Um, uh, we're kind of halfway through the interview, and there's two things I'd like to do. First of all, I'd like to get a little technical, and if you could describe the different types of explosives for us. And then, because this is FBI retired case file review, I'd like to go over uh, one or two of the major bombing uh, cases that you were able to, you know, go to and, and, and do your explosive expert work. So, first of all, if you could tell us about the different types of explosives. Well, explosives are broken down into many categories. There's uh, there's high explosives and low explosives. High explosives, uh, without getting into too technical detail, um, are explosives we've heard of, again, from the movies and uh, books and things like that. That is uh, dynamite, uh, C4, TNT. Those are all the ones that we, you know, your average citizen will recognize from, you know, uh, uh, movies, right? Lethal weapon and things like that, dopey movies like that. And uh, they they detonate. They don't they don't explode. They detonate at uh, high velocity. What's and the difference? Have, What's the difference? Well, there is a um, a, a, a velocity that uh, determines whether or not you have a high explosive or a low explosive. Velocity of detonation is the speed at which the detonation wave proceeds through the explosive itself. I'm getting into a little too much detail here, but in any event. Um, any explosive that uh, has a detonation velocity of 3,300 feet per second or more is considered a high explosive. Again, C4, TNT, dynamite, the ones we all have heard of. Any explosive that detonates or burns at below 3,300 feet per second is considered a low explosive. That includes what is almost universally referred to as gunpowder, okay? Um, Gunpowder is uh, the, the the name we all know. And what, what really is is black powder. Uh, the old black powder back in the day, um, smokeless powders, which we carried in our firearms in the FBI, and uh, and explosive like. Then you have um, further delineations. You have homemade explosives, and those are the ones that our enemies are using against us primarily. It's what uh, McVeigh used in Oklahoma City. Anfo was a homemade explosive. Um, You've got the peroxide-based explosives that are being used a lot overseas, uh, explosives called TATP and HMTD. I won't go over the real, you know, long um, chemical formulas. Then you have uh, what's called primary explosives and secondary explosives. Primary explosives are extremely sensitive explosives that are primarily only used in blasting caps. And blasting caps are what you need to set off a high explosive. Uh, if you don't have a, a blasting cap, um, and you have a high explosive in your hand, you've got a club because it's not going to do anything. Um, so you've got those kind of things. And, um, again, there's a lot of explosives out there. Um, but, they again, they come in um, you know, military explosives are explosives that uh, Tom Vale uses that we mentioned earlier. And those are available primarily, in most cases, only to the military. And that includes C4 and TNT. And uh, some military detonation cord, explosive rope, I used to call it. Then you have commercial explosives where, you know, if you have the proper IED and the licenses and storage facilities, you can buy it on your own in the, in the U.S. And those are the dynamites, 
the binary explosives, the emulsions, um, the water gels, the time fuse that you can only get uh, from an explosives company uh, in the U.S. There are only three ways to get explosives in the U.S. and pretty much anywhere else. You can either buy them, you can steal them, or you can make them. And um, that is what we're facing and have been facing for all these years. So, again, without getting into a whole class, there's a lot of different types of explosives out there. Some you can get, some you can't. If you can't get them, unfortunately, um, some uh, people decide to make them. And uh, we're seeing a lot of that, particularly overseas. Now, I'm really um, looking forward to talking to you about the cases that you worked overseas. But just real quick, if you could tell us, we know about the Unabomber. You know, he's, uh, those are bombs that, uh, you know, uh, were exploded in the U.S. Of course, we know Oklahoma right. City bombing. What, what other bombings? Oh, what was the Olympics in Atlanta? That was a bombing, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, I, I was not at the Olympics, the Olympic bombings. I was actually, that same time that happened, I was at TWA Flight 800 in New York trying to figure wow. out what brought that plane down. Um, at one point, we thought, obviously, for quite a while, we thought an IED brought that plane down. But uh, myself and um, my friends from NYPD, pretty much all of them were retired by now, uh, we were there the first two weeks of that of that scene, and every single item that was brought up from the bottom of that ocean was brought to us, and we looked at everything. Every bit of that plane was brought to us, and we looked for any kind of evidence of of explosive violence, uh, either to to the plane itself or, to, unfortunately, uh, the victims, um, and. We didn't find anything. So um, while that was going on, the Olympic Park bombing happened um, in Atlanta. So I was not on that one. But, you know, quite frankly, I came home from uh, TWA after two and a half weeks, and I was home for 24 hours, one day I was home for. And then Kobar Towers blew up in Saudi Arabia. And pretty much every FBI bomb technician who was not otherwise engaged was in Atlanta. So <laughs> I got the call and go, you're on your way to Saudi Arabia. So I just got home. So I had to pack my bags and got on a plane. And, you know, L.A. to, to uh, Saudi Arabia, that's a long flight. Mm. And um, so I got there and spent uh, almost 30 days in Saudi Arabia working that bombing. Well, tell us, when you got there, what was your objective? I mean, what were the things that you needed to gather, the information you needed to gather from that? And, and explain, to, explain to everybody about what was blown up and who blew it up. Well, as you know, um, the, uh, the world is divided up into sections uh, as far as the Bureau goes, okay? New York has the Middle East or, you know, actually Washington Field has the Middle East. Um, New York has Africa, I think, and Europe. Um, Miami has South America, and L.A. has the Pacific Rim. So um, the Cobar Towers in Saudi Arabia, that was a WFO gig, a Washington Field of his gig. So they sent most of their uh, JTTF out there, the Joint Terrorism Task Force, with the investigators. They sent their uh, evidence response team, which back in, you know, back in those, this is 1996, now this is in July, June of 96, and... Um, they were uh, they're very good. They were very experienced. So they went out there, and um, like I said, there's only there was only five SABTs there. So our job was to um, basically stand by and any kind of piece of any piece of evidence that was recovered from the from the crater, which was massive, would come through us, and we would say, okay, that's possibly got some explosive, you know. Uh, effects on got some explosive uh, residue on it. Hang on to that. Keep that. Um, that, on the other hand, is nothing. Get rid of it. Um, this and incident you can, occurred, and you can tell that quickly just by yeah, eyeballing. Yeah, you can. You actually can. You cannot. You can actually, if you're experienced bomb tech, can tell whether or not a piece of the vehicle, in this case, because we're looking for the vehicle uh, parts, identify the vehicle. You can tell if a certain piece of that um, vehicle was close to the detonation. It's got certain 
um, effects that present itself um, uh, a piece of metal when it's really close to the, uh, see the detonation. And we were looking for identification of the vehicle, like a VIN number, something like something that would let us to you know towards what kind of vehicle it was to, for an investigative lead. So this incident occurred at, at night. This was this was a um, Hezbollah incident, and I could, I, we didn't know this at the time. Uh, Rim and I, we, I was a uh, investigator, um, what I call the inside the hole kind of person. We're in the crater, we're pressing the scene. Um, it's really irrelevant to us who did it and why it was why it was done. It doesn't matter to us, really, one way or the other. We're going to process the scene no matter what. So, you know, we weren't really privy to what was happening outside the hole, which means the investigators trying to find out who did it. Uh, we communicated with one another, but, you know, we weren't getting a whole heck of a lot of cooperation from the Saudis at the time. Um, now, we come to find out later that this was a, a Hezbollah incident. And the vehicle was a, a septic tank truck, one of those, we used to call it a honey truck, uh, cleaning out the septic tanks. And the vehicle was filled with about anywhere between 20 and 30,000 pounds of, ex- of explosives, one of the largest improvised explosive devices ever made until that time. It was massive. And um, they pulled up to the Cobart Towers dormitory in Saudi Arabia where the U.S. military was uh, staying, and they were in, at the time they were enforcing the no-fly zone in southern Iraq. And a witness stated that he saw the truck uh, pull around the building, back up to as close as he could. He got to the chain-link fence. The witness actually heard the chain-link fence rubbing up against the back of the truck. And the witness also stated he heard, he saw uh, sparks, which we think might have been time-fused. We don't know for sure where the uh, truck driver lit the fuse. He got out of the vehicle, closed the door, got into a, a, a second vehicle. The second vehicle drove away. The witness, who was actually on top of the building, he was a, a military policeman, actually saved a lot of lives, it turns out. He recognized what was going on. He recognized possibly an IED. And he started you know, going from the roof down to each floor, telling people to get out of the building or at least go to the other side of the building. And he saved a whole bunch of lives. Mm. And the truck detonated, brought the whole bu- brought half the building down, and killed 19 U.S. servicemen and one uh, local Saudi for a total of 20. And if you look at that picture, the first thing I noticed when I got there, and I remember now I didn't get there until what at least 18 hours, tw- 24 hours after it occurred. So a lot of the uh, scene had been picked up. A lot of the uh, evidence was picked up by the Saudis before we got there. And the first thing I noticed when I got, got to the scene was how eerily similar it looked like Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at the picture of Oklahoma City, look at the picture of Saudi Arabia, Cobar Towers, with the exception of, I think, the, the uh, Cobar Towers was a couple of floors uh, shorter than uh, Oklahoma City. I'm not sure about that, but it looked just the same. Oh, my God, I've been here before. So um, the next thing I remember about that scene is it was so hot. This was in June in Saudi Arabia. And I had never been to Saudi Arabia before, and I'm thinking Saudi equals heat equals no humidity. But we were on the Persian Gulf side. We were then we were then sight of Iran, Bahrain. We could actually see them from where we were. And I have never, to this day, I have never been that hot or experienced that kind of humidity in my life. What was and the temperature? Was, the temperatures would get up to about 115 to 120, and the humidity was in the 90s. So you can, you know, you can imagine the worst day in Florida or Houston you could ever envision in your life, and double that. And it was. And so you're working bad. in a hole. And you're working in a hole. And we were. It was so hot that we had to work the crime scene from four o'clock in the afternoon to four in the morning. We could not work during the daytime because we'd all die. And I was one of the bomb technicians that had to go down into the crater. And the crater was probably four or five times the size of Oklahoma City. The crater, now remember now, you, have, you had hard red clay in Oklahoma City. And you had about anywhere from 4,800 to 7,200 pounds of explosives in that, in that one. In Cobart Towers, you had anywhere from twenty to 30,000 pounds of high explosives 
in sand. So that sand evacuated, and that hole, when we got there, that crater was 85 feet wide and 35 feet deep. That's a three-and-a-half-story building down into the ground. And it filled up. Before we got there, the Persian Gulf, somehow, we ruptured an aquifer. and Or they ruptured an aquifer, not we. The, the, uh, the terrorists did. And the Persian Gulf came flooding into the hole, into the crater. So we had to we had to dig out that crater, obviously, to find the uh, what's left of the vehicle. And we had to, hang, you know, thank God we had the engineers there, and they rigged up a system where the Persian Gulf was um, pushed out or uh, sucked out of the crater, so we could get down there and, uh, and and process the scene. And that was a long that was a long crime scene. That was miserable. That was miserable. But uh, again, we didn't find out until years later that um, Hezbollah and uh, Iran were allegedly behind it. And uh, there were some arrests in Saudi Arabia. We, did, we do know that. Um, there were some people who went to prison in Saudi Arabia. And uh, whether or not they were, right, they were right, the right people, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but that was, a, uh, that was a tough crime scene. And, um, again, it was a perfect evidence, an example of how truly awful a bombing crime scene can be uh, because you're out there a long time and you're getting dirty, and uh, a lot of people were dropping from heat illnesses. Um, it was it was a difficult scene. I will say huh. this: the Saudi, the, the, I, I, some of the Saudis who were there were uh, spoke better English than I did. They were all American educated, and everything that I did, I was one of the only um, U.S. personnel allowed out of the Kobar Towers complex and into the actually town of Duran. And I was supposed to um, um, do some um, investigation, crime scene investigation in the city, and I had all the uh, Saudi police with me, and a lot of them were ed- American educated and um, very friendly, but they wanted to know every single solitary thing I was doing. They actually filmed me doing what I was doing, which was kind to of strange. Le- to learn from you or because to learn, they didn't trust To you? learn. Well, I, I was hoping to learn. Because I asked that. I said, why are you guys filming? Because we want to see what you're doing so we can do it. I said, all right. You know, I'll take them at their word. And, and in that particular case, you knew what type of vehicle it was because you had a witness. So you that, were trying and that to helped. Mm-hmm. That helped. Thank God we had that because he was the only witness we had that we had available to us. Now, um, there were a lot of Saudi witnesses, but I didn't have access to them. The only guy I had access to was that young um, Air Force um, sergeant who saw the whole thing, and so we knew going in we were looking at a, at a, a honey truck or a septic tank truck, which you know which obviously helped. Um, but you know sometimes you won't have anything at all; you just have a big hole in the ground. Now you got to figure out what, the, what happened. Were they able to use the information that you got about that vehicle from the blast in order to identify the people who were responsible? Do you know? Yes, yes, yes. Now I didn't know any of this. Okay, until a long time after I got home. Um, I never knew any of this um, because there were a lot. I remember Louis Free, who was the director at the time, actually, I'll never forget this. Louis Free, who was our director at the time, visited. We were having some issues with the Saudis and the, and the, and the government. So Louis Free flew out to Dharan, Saudi Arabia, and one night I'm there working, sweating, miserable, and I look up and I see Louis Free in a nice, crisp suit. <laughs> and I'm going, what in the world is he doing here? Now, again, I had no idea why he was there. I thought he was just you know, visiting the troops. Come to find out a long time ago, he's trying to you know, get things squared away between us and the Saudi government. But um, I'll forget, he actually, you know, he was always so impeccably dressed. And he had his tie up. He didn't have his tie loose. He was just, and it was just blazing hot. And he's then wasn't even sweating and visited the troops as we're working the scene. So, again, I never knew any of this stuff until a long time after I got home. Um, And, uh, again, uh, they did have some suspects and somebody went to jail. It was, I don't know, any more than that. And, you know, most crime scene investigators don't know any more than that. I can understand that. You come in and do your job and 
yes. by the time they're developing that part of the case, you've moved on. We're gone. Yeah. We're gone. Yeah, you know. And like I said, the way I teach it is, you know, it's mildly interesting to me as a crime scene investigator who did it and why it was done. You know, I can't say I don't care. I do care, especially if my countrymen are killed. But in reality, I'm not going to change the way I do my job. You know, it doesn't matter to me one way or the other. I process the scene like I'm trained to do, and and uh, once I'm done with it, I move on. Well, that's pretty interesting. And the the whole reason that the FBI was the uh, agency there investigating this is that uh, extraterritorial jurisdiction right. uh, that we have. And we've talked about that before. I, I think uh, episode 16, John Casenza, I don't know if you know John, but he mm-hmm. talked a little bit about uh, uh, being there as part of um, uh, ERT and uh, investigators also at the Cobar Tower. So if anybody's interested in that, they can they can uh, uh, follow this up with uh, episode 16 with John Casenza. Right. We lost uh, – we had 19 19- – uh, military personnel killed in that incident. That's why the bureau was there. And uh, another another uh, weird, sad event is um, um, as we as as I processed the scene, as as we processed the scene, we we started at the roof and went and you know, worked our way down, and to make sure we got every single solitary floor in every room. And one of the rooms that I walked into first um, was uh, belonged to a young Air Force captain who I found out later had gone to uh, was from the same town in New York that I was from wow. which was which was very sad. He didn't go to my high school but he was from my town in Long Island. And uh that was kind of sad and and uh you know melancholy. But the you know there are the times when when governments will call the bureau when we really don't have any jurisdiction. And that was another incident I worked oh god about 10 years later in the Maldive Islands. Um, in the Indian Ocean. And this was an incident where a uh, Al-Qaeda, a 12-person Al-Qaeda-backed cell in the country of the Maldives. Maldives is a very small island nation south of uh, Sri Lanka in the Indian Ocean. And it's absolutely beautiful. In fact, it was the best trip I have ever been on in my 23 years in the Bureau, 65 countries, 48 states. This was a great trip. Because this this nation is like a tourist paradise, mm. and it was gorgeous. And this was the very first bombing this nation had ever had. They'd never had a bombing before in their nation's history. And as bombings go, quite frankly, it wasn't much. Okay, It was a very small device. In fact, the device may not have actually functioned properly, but 12 people were injured, two Seriously, uh, but none of them were Americans. Uh, you had ten Chinese, you had two Japanese, and two British citizens, and they were tourists. They weren't in a tour group, and they were touring um, a, a Central Park-like area of the capital of Malé in the Maldives. And a device was placed um, in the park. The device functioned. It was more fire than anything else. The two British citizens were had some uh, some fragmentation wounds. They weren't seriously injured at all. In fact, I don't think they they were probably gone by the time we got there. But uh, it turns out that, as far as I remember correctly, their version of the FBI director was a brand new graduate of the National Academy at Quantico. Okay. And he said, "Hey, I want the FBI out here uh, to process, help us process this scene." Now that annoyed the British as well it should have, because two of their citizens were injured, and quite frankly, they should have been there. But the Maldivian government said, now we want the Bureau. So uh, at that time, as you know, um, L.A. was responsible for everything up to India. And uh, so we went out there. I went out there with a couple of guys from the explosives unit. Um, one guy, uh, one female from my evidence response team in Los Angeles, and the legal attache in, oh, God, I want to say it was India, Delhi. Okay, and the legat obviously was the liaison. Um, the crime scene was was it was practically done by the time again from coming from Los Angeles to Sri Lanka 
It's a 21 hour flight. So by the time we got there, it had been, it had been 48 hours. The, um, 10 of the 12 suspects were rounded up. They were already in custody. And, uh, so we, you know, they sent us out there to, to process the scene, um, in addition to what they'd already done. Again, this was the very first crime scene. They did the best they could. They were a very modern country. They had very, very good, um, facilities. Much better than I thought I would see. Okay, it was just like you'd drive on anything in the U.S. because they got a lot of money because of the tourists. And, um, they spend it on their police departments. They had very good facilities. And, uh, we processed the scene again. You can actually see, if, if you go on, it, this, this incident is actually on YouTube because it was filmed. A CCTV camera was watching the whole thing. You can see it on YouTube. I think the title is, uh, Maldives Suspects Captured or something like that. And you can see, uh, the Maldive, um, defense minister, I think, uh, in front of the television, he actually video, he shows the videotape, and you can see the two suspects. You can see the victims walk past. You can see the the device function, and uh, like I said, by the time we got there, we had the luxury of seeing all that. And uh, there was still stuff that they had missed from the crime scene that we we picked up. Um, they asked to use our lab to um, process the evidence, so we took all the we took the ID. I'm not going to get into too much detail about the ID, but uh, I mean it basically kind of fell out of the package and was largely intact. So it was kind of a pretty easy crime scene to process. But um, towards the end, we were there for about a week and a half. Towards the end, our last night there, we had dinner with the um, high-ranking personnel from the police department, the military, and they invited us. They invited the four of us to go with them as they went. They were going to hit, the next morning, they were going to hit this island south in the island chain, and they want to know if we would want to go with us. And of course, I went, oh, absolutely. Oh, let's go. Let's go. We'll, we'll, we'll go. The league had said, no, they've got flights. They've got to leave tonight. So the next morning, the police went down to this island and a pitched battle ensued, a 40 hour standoff. Um, several police officers injured. One lost a hand to a machete wielding terrorist and if the uh, league had not told us, no, we're not going, we would have been there. We would have been there watching the whole thing or involved. Wow. In. So good call by the league at, as it turns <laughs> out, you know, watching over us. But I would have gone, absolutely. You're going to roll up a uh, Al-Qaeda cell? Count me in. Um, but uh, they said, no, cooler heads prevailed, obviously, and um, we left. But um, that was a interesting case, like I said, the very first time. And they've had several incidents since then. I think they've actually had a coup in the Maldives since then. Um, but that was a uh, that was a good trip and a lot of good liaison. And I actually gave a post-blast class to about 150 police officers who were brought in from all over the country on how to do it themselves the next time. So um, it was a it was an interesting incident and an interesting crime scene. Wow, Kevin. I mean, we've had uh, the, the great thing about this podcast is, you know, having the opportunity uh, to to speak to agents who have worked so many different things. You know, I was a, a white collar crime agent. I did mostly frauds and corruptions and, you know, schemes like that. And it's just amazing to see what other people were doing and, and yours is one of the most exciting assignments uh, that, that uh, I've had a chance to talk to somebody about. So why did you become an agent? You know, what was it? Was it something that you always wanted to do? No, actually, no. I, I'd never really thought about the Bureau at all. Um, I got out of college. I, w- I wanted a military career, and I uh, went in the Marine Corps, and um, they told me how to blow things up, and I did my time in the Marine Corps, and I had a degree in criminal justice, so naturally I followed, you know, like a lot of Marines do. They joined the police department, so I went back to where I went to college, Tulsa, Oklahoma. I applied to the police department, got in, and uh, I stayed there for eight years. About halfway through, uh, I got on the bomb squad because of my you know, demolitions experience in the Marine Corps, and I got to go to the Hazardous Devices School, which I said is in Huntsville, Alabama, which is the only civilian school for, you know, police and FBI bomb techs. And um, I had some personal issues. I, I was going through a divorce, and I wanted to change the scenery. So I tell people I ran away and joined the circus. <laughs> and <laughs> I, 
I just I had a I had a, a buddy of mine in the Marine Corps whose wife worked at the Tulsa office of the FBI, and on on a lark I said, "Hey, give me an application," and I filled it out. And 13 months later, after the interviews, the whole nine yards, you know, this is totally different. I don't want to get anybody's hopes up. This is totally different than you know when you and I went went to, came to the bureau 100 years ago. It's much different now. Yeah, um, all online now. Oh yeah, it's all online now. We didn't have anything like that back in the thousand years ago. But um, 13 <laughs> years after I uh, filled out that application by hand, <laughs> um, I walked 13 the, months. The, 13 months. It took me 13 months from the day I filled out that application, dropped it off at Tulsa. Uh, FBI, and I walked into the academy on 9990. Um, that was it. So, um, back again, back in those days uh, in the FBI, if you were already a bomb technician, you were kind of blessed to become an SABT. Um, so they made me an SABT immediately upon you know graduation. My first office, however, was to Gallup, New Mexico. I went straight to the Navajo Indian Reservation, wow. right at the academy, because again, um, that's a lot of police work. So they sent. You know, mostly only ex-cops like me to those places. So um, I did two years there. I married my classmate. Um, oh, one of those. Yeah, uh, yeah one of those. We, yeah, we had one in, in, in my class. Hey, Ken. Yeah, we, hey, Mary. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we, we, we met um, the first day of the academy. We got married in 1992. Um, she was in Buffalo at the time. So I, you know, got a no-cost transfer to... Buffalo. I spent three years in Buffalo. I worked bank robberies, um, reactive crime, and bombings. And I worked at my very first major bombing was the World Trade Center in 1993. I processed that one for a help process that one for, for, for a month. And then I, 1995, I worked the Oklahoma City bombing. And I was already under orders. We had, we'd, we'd had it with Buffalo. No offense to my friends in Buffalo, but we, we couldn't take those winners anymore. And uh, so the only way to get out of Buffalo was to either, you know, back in those days, again, um, uh, transferred to New York or LA, where they, you know, every six months they would have those. Please come to LA, New York. We have nobody um, um, communications, so we volunteered for LA. Got out there in '95 and uh, fell in love with it. I loved LA. I miss it every day. Um, it was a great place to be a bomb technician, and um, the management in LA was much more enlightened, for the most part, than other management. They allowed me to continue to uh, do the bomb tech work, to expand the program. Um, they liked the fact that uh, I had such close liaison with the police departments and the military there. We were very close. Um, my dear friends, a lot of really great friends on the PD. In fact, um, this may sound terrible, but I had more police friends than I had FBI friends. Truth be known, because I, you know, I dealt with them. Bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I was, you know, I was very rarely in the office. I was always gone. So my friends were all you know, policemen and military guys. So, um, but I enjoyed it. It uh, it made me who I am, and um, I miss. No, I don't miss the the nonsense in the bureau, but I miss the camaraderie. I'm sure you do too. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that's that's why I'm doing this. In yeah, a way, I mean, you know, I've been able yeah. to return to that camaraderie um, because of uh, of the podcast and the and the connections and the and the associations I've been able to make. Yeah, and there are four or five people left in my academy who are still around. Um, my wife and I retired the same day. We came in the same day. We left the same day. And um, But there's still a few of us still around. Some of the younger kids, like you know, 23, 24 when they came in, uh, they're still around. But all of us old guys and girls, well, we're long gone now. You know? yeah. January's, January's going to be five years for us. Five wow. years, we're out. That's amazing. It's gone so fast. So. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, next year will be ten years for me. Holy mackerel! Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really old. <laughs> well, I'm All not right. going to say anything. Okay, I yeah, don't, don't. I know not enough to call a woman old. No way. Yeah, I'm, I'm that's not doing true. that. <laughs> yeah, don't say anything. All right, so I like to give my guests the opportunity to have the last word. So it could be about any of the assignments that you had, things that you want to leave us with when it comes to being a bomb tech, whatever you want to say. Well, I've always told people that being an FBI bomb tech, being an SCBT is without doubt the best job in the Bureau. And the reason is 
no one knows what you do, and they're afraid to ask. So <laughs> a lot of times they give you a wide latitude. Um, they say, please don't blow yourself up. Please don't blow our vehicles up, and just do what you have to do. So any FBI guys listening out there, if you can get into the SAPT program, anytime between now and the time you pull a pin, I would highly recommend it. It's a great, great job. And you get to travel a lot of places. There's only one specialty that travels more than FBI bomb ticks, and those are the polygraphers. And that's because there's just not a whole heck of a lot of them around compared to the SABTs. But if you want to do some travel, see some exotic places, do some really great work, liaison with other organizations in the federal government and overseas, try being a bomb tech. It's not as dangerous as everybody thinks. Okay, If you know what you're doing, uh, you will abide by your training, and you use your equipment the way it's supposed to be, you'll be fine. And that's the end of the interview. As always, back at jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of Kevin Miles, as well as a photo of the Cobar Towers crime scene, and links to several articles and videos about post-blast investigations, including that Maldives Al-Qaeda attack caught on surveillance video. If you enjoyed the interview, I hope you share it with your friends, family, and associates. I make it easy for you. At the bottom of the episode show notes, you'll find all the social media share buttons. And of course, if you're listening to this using a podcast app, you can share the episode directly from your device. I finally had the chance to finish the book that I was reading, The Black Marble by Joseph Wambaugh. And for those of you who've been listening for a while, you know that Joseph Wamba is one of my favorite authors. He writes police procedurals, what I like to read, what I like to write. And his famous line is that a good crime novel isn't about how cops work on cases, but how cases work on cops. I love that. So The Black Marble is about a burned out former homicide detective in Los Angeles who gets teamed up with a twice divorced female property crime detective with a grudge against men. These unlikely partners are assigned to the strange case of a stolen show dog being held for ransom. Now the crime itself is not that sexy. But the characters are developed so well that I love this book anyway. So it may not be one of Joseph Wamba's very best books, but it is still a great police procedural. So you might want to check it out. And while you're at Amazon.com checking out The Black Marble, I hope you also take a look at my FBI crime thriller, Pay to Play, about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry. It's out in ebook, trade paperback, and audiobook. Don't forget, I will not be posting a new episode next week, October 6th. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.